Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the 49-51 vote in the Senate on the Women's Health Protection Act, which Senate Majority Leader Schumer described as, quote, one of the most important senators will take not only in this session, but in this century. Schumer is both responding to an infuriated Democratic base and the need to put Republicans on the record opposing women's rights that many know privately will hurt them, which is why they have been so silent since the leak of the Alito opinion. Joining us is Jim Manley, a Washington, D.C.-based independent public affairs consultant, Democratic strategist, and a 21-year veteran of the U.S. Senate, where he served as a senior advisor to Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid for the last six of those years, and before that served 12 years as an aide to the late Senator Ted Kennedy. Even though the Democrats lost Senator Manchin on their side and Senators Collins and Murkowski on the GOP side, we'll discuss the importance of this vote in this election year as the radical and reactionary intentions of this far-right Supreme Court become more apparent. Then, with Elon Musk admitting his plans to bring back Trump on Twitter once he succeeds in his $44 billion purchase of the influential social media platform, we'll speak with Max Chafkin, a features editor and tech reporter at Bloomberg Businessweek, whose work has also appeared in Fast Company, Vanity Fair, and the New York Times Magazine. He is the author of the new book, The Contrarian, Peter Thiel, and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power, and we will discuss his latest article at Bloomberg, Elon Musk stakes a $44 billion claim on the future of free speech. Then finally, we look into whether there are signs of a lessening of patriotic fervor in the Russian media as the war in Ukraine drags on and Russian casualties mount. Joining us is Michael Gorham, professor of Russian studies at the University of Florida and author of two award-winning books on language, culture, and politics after Newspeak, Language, Culture, and the Politics in Russia from Gorbachev to Putin, and Speaking in Soviet Tongues, Language, Culture, and the Politics of Voice in Revolutionary Russia. He co-edited Digital Russia, the Language, Culture, and Politics of New Media Communications, and the Culture and Politics of Verbal Prohibition in Putin's Russia, and has recently published articles devoted to the political and rhetorical impact of trolls, hackers, blogging bureaucrats, tweeting presidents, dictators on Instagram, Alexei Navalny on YouTube, and the Putin administration's recent efforts to enlist all legislative, technological, and rhetorical means possible to establish a sovereign internet independent of the World Wide Web. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now, Jim Manley, a Washington, D.C.-based independent public affairs consultant and democratic strategist with a 21-year and a 21-year veteran of the United States Senate, where he served as a senior advisor to Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid for the last six of those years, and before that served 12 years as an aide to the late Senator Ted Kennedy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jim Manley. 
Thanks, Ian, for having me on again. Well, thanks for joining us, Jim. And the vote was taken today in the Senate on the Women's Health Protection Act. And the final tally was 49 to 51, with okay. Joe Manchin of West Virginia joining with the Republicans to vote down the bill. So do you think it succeeded in what Senator Majority Leader Chuck Schumer called the vote, quote, one of the most important senators will take, not only this session, but in this century? Uh, well, I have to wait until uh, the results of the elections in November to see if it actually worked. Um, to be clear, uh, you know, I support the Senator Schumer's idea of forcing a vote. As a former leadership aide, I'm oftentimes uncomfortable with the idea of uh, forcing votes that divide the caucus. But in this particular instance, he had no, uh, no option uh, but to go ahead and call the roll and see where the votes are. My hope is, is that uh, Democrats will finally understand what's at stake here and vote in massive numbers in November to kick out the Republicans. Because, as others have suggested, if you think they're going to stop with abortion, you're just simply not paying attention to the current uh, iteration of the Republican Party. But anyways, we'll see. Uh, for right now, um, you know, my hope is that folks are going to rally around and energize, you know, do the do their events, et cetera, uh, to get ready for November. But we'll have to wait and see how that plays uh, in the months to come. But, Jim, it seems like the headline is that the vote failed as opposed to the vote named and shamed Republicans. Yeah, I mean, that's always the tricky part about uh, having a vote where you need 60 votes, uh, you know, to overcome, uh, you know, a filibuster. Uh, I tried to scour some of the headlines before doing the interview with you. Uh, you know, the quick and dirty shows me that some are sh suggesting, you know, running with headlines uh, that say that Republicans block uh, abortion vote, which obviously in my mind is correct. But, um, you know, it, again, it's going to be up to Democrats, not only leadership, but also the different party organizations, you know, try and, you know, provide uh, context for this in the weeks to months to come. And point, you know, the finger exactly where it uh, deserves to be pointed at. And that's at Republicans. And Joe Manchin said that he wasn't going to vote for this bill, but he said he would have voted for a bill to codify Roe v. Wade. So is he referring to the Susan Collins Mikowski bill? Uh, yes, I believe he is. Um, among other things, there were some, I don't know how to say this, in you know layman's language but there were some findings some throwaway language in the original version of senator blumenthal's bill uh that some found objectionable now they stripped out that language um before actually having the roll call vote today uh but as far as senator manchin is concerned he wanted a, a, a narrower bill and for uh, uh, most democrats probably correctly, they wanted to stick with the bill that they had. So given that you just said that they wanted to stick with the bill that they have, what about the argument that it would have been good to have gotten a couple of Republicans to vote for it, because then it would look like yeah. a, a bill that was dealing with the actual issue of abortion, as opposed to the yep. way we know that McConnell is going to spin it and saying that there was a problem with the bill 
not with the abortion yeah. ruling coming up with the Supreme Court. Let's drill down on this uh, for a, a minute because it's an important point. What you're suggesting is that um, instead of voting for the Democratic bill authored by Senator Blumenthal, the leadership should have taken a bill to the floor authored by Collins and Murkowski uh, in an attempt to try and pick up additional Republican votes. But to be clear, if they did that, they still would have come fallen far short of the 60 votes necessary to overcome the filibuster. So to me, it's, you know, half a dozen of this, half a dozen of that. And I prefer uh, to stick with a Democratic bill uh, designed to try and rally the party as a whole as we head towards elections in November. Because again, to be crystal clear, you know, there wasn't a snowball's chance in hell that, uh, you know, the bill authored or put forward by Collins and Murkowski, we're ever going to pick up 60 votes. There's, there's most Republicans simply are not going to go for it. So sure, in a perfect world, it would have been nice to have the rhetorical advantage of, you know, saying, you know, we got a couple of Republican votes on this, but, you know, in the Senate, uh, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. And if you don't have 60 votes, you don't have 60 votes. And again, I'm speaking with Jim Manley, a Washington, D.C.-based independent public affairs consultant, Democratic strategist, and a 21-year veteran of the United States Senate, where he served as a senior advisor to Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid for the last six of those years, and before that served 12 years as an aide to the late Senator Ted Kennedy. So then it's more important then to rally the Democrats than to put the Republicans on record which no, I, why, hold on a second. Why can't we do both here? I mean, they voted against this bill, so uh -huh. and they're going to have to—they're going to have to defend it. Now, I couldn't help but notice that since over the last week, since you know the bombshell reporting by Politico, a lot of Republicans have avoided uh, talking about this issue. There's a reason for it. They're s scared of it. They—they view they're on a path. Uh, uh, you know, to success in November. They don't want anything to rock the boat here. So that's why a lot of folks, including McConnell, starting with McConnell, tried to focus more on the leak itself, which of course is becoming more and more laughable by the day, than instead on the substantive issues here. So, um, you know, again, I'm very comfortable with the strategy. And, you know, I, I, I think, and my hope is that, you know, Democrats are going to rally around this issue now that they finally see what's exactly at stake. Because I think, as you and I have talked about before, Democrats have never taken uh, judicial, nom judicial nominees and or the Supreme Court as serious as Republicans have. Hopefully that's going to change this time around. Well, there's no doubt that it seems that ever since the Politico leak and this draft opinion of Bialitos has become public, the silence from Republicans has been absolutely telling you. You're absolutely yeah. right, Jim, that, I mean, McConnell and company, they've been hiding behind the court, right? Exactly. Oh, they wanted political cover, but now they don't have political cover. So what is their follow-up situation now if this decision comes down the way that people expect it? I mean, it may be toned down a bit in the final, it, it some of the more acerbic and sort of nasty commentary from Alito, but I think the chances of, of this opinion not becoming the majority opinion in a ruling either at the late end of, of June or early July, I think are pretty mm -hmm. slim, don't you? 
Uh, I, I do. And, you know, as you may or may not know, there was yet another leak out of the court last night to Politico where they suggested that there's there hasn't been another draft circulated uh, since this original one, which apparently was drafted in February, which suggests to most court observers that, you know, the court is comfortable with uh, their current, you know, uh, the current iteration. Again, leaving those machinations aside, um, you know, they had the vote. I think it was the right thing to do. Now it's up to uh, Democrats to organize to uh, get folks uh, focused on the election in November, get the fundraising up, uh, you know, uh, and then try and point, push Republicans in their corner and paint them as the extremists as they are. Um, and then you haven't asked me yet, but I'll just go ahead and say it. And the question is, what, if anything else, can be done? Uh, and I don't know if there's any executive orders in the works that can try and at least deal with some of the side issues at stake here. But, you know, again, ultimately, it's going to come down to the Supreme Court ruling to overturn, you know, 50 years of precedence. And there's not anything the Senate can do in the short term about that. And President Biden, after the vote today, said once again, this fundamental rights are at risk at the Supreme Court. Senate Republicans have blocked passage of the Women's Health Protection Act, a bill that affirmatively protects access to reproductive health care. This failure to act comes at a time when women's constitutional rights are under unprecedented attacks and it runs counter to the will of the majority of the American people. So, Yeah, I, I scoured that statement quickly before getting ready to talk to you. I didn't see any uh, indication of additional steps to come, but we'll have to wait and see what, if anything, can be done again. But simply, to be clear, it's simply going to be around the margins, you know, beefing up protections at, uh, at clinics, uh, for instance. Um, but for right now, the die is cast. Um, you know, Republican, it'd be interesting. Obviously, the extremists within the party, which, of course, are more and more prominent, you know, are going to continue to push this issue publicly because they believe it's a winning issue, despite all the polling to the contrary. But it's going to be interesting to see how the more mainstream, if you will, rank and file Republicans, both the House and the Senate, deal with it in the months to come. Because there's no there, because there's no hiding from it anymore. This is it. You know, in years past, you and I have talked about this. It's been, uh, you know, in the lead up to different elections, it's always been somewhat, uh, you know, uh, hypothetical. Uh, but now, you know, the reality is uh, hitting everyone. And it'll be interesting to see how uh, Republicans handle it. Well, earlier, President Biden had pointed out that this is more than a ban on an abortion, that this because it goes after privacy rights, which underlie yes. the decisions, both Roe and Casey, which Alito wants to get rid of. And by the way, Casey, that decision's named after the father <laughs> of, of the senator. That's right. right. And he, That's right. I he was expected that. to vote against it, but he, th he didn't, and only Manchin voted against it, right? Yeah, that's correct. I, I mean, he's been, uh, you know, I'm not Senator Casey's spokesman, uh, uh, but I think it's fair to say he's been wrestling with this issue, this issue in recent years. Um, you know, both he and his father have been, you know, uh, opponents of uh, 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 abortion. Um, but you know, he has finally come into a place with the rest of the caucus uh, where they understand, you know, what's exactly, you know, at stake here. And uh, I think he did the right thing and the courageous thing today. So that was interesting to watch. Yes. That is just another indication of how more liberal the, 
Senate Democratic caucus has become in, uh, uh, in recent years. With the exception, again, of Joe Manchin, uh, who, along with Kirsten Sinema, <laughs> have, have yeah. really stymied the Democratic agenda, and particularly Biden's agenda. And it's an uphill battle now, it does seem, with inflation being the, the big factor that everybody's obsessing over. Uh, and polls indicate that they're blaming uh, Biden. Yeah. And when, in fact, I mean, how can you shift the blame to those, the people you should be blaming for the rising gas prices are Vladimir Putin, Mohammed bin Salman, and Mohammed bin Zayed, the, the Saudi. And, mm-hmm. the, and by the way, they're, they're in a, an alliance of sorts, uh, OPEC Plus. And MBS just gave $2 billion to Jared Kushner. And you know they want to bring back Trump. So yeah, no, know. they're acting with they're acting with impunity. You know, there's a longstanding quote unquote security agreement with the Saudis, and they sure don't seem like um, uh, they're a part of it. Right? You know, they're, they're grateful for it uh, right now, and or you know, willing to take a look at their views. I, I mean, yeah, I, you know, let's just let's just stipulate this. I mean, despite you know today's vote, I'm also not convinced that you know how important of an issue this is going to be in November remains to be seen. I think as it usually is, it's always going to, it's going to come down to the economy. But again, the issue is now that the reality is finally facing people, uh, you know, uh, how are they going to react and, uh, and, or are they going to come out record numbers in the past? It hasn't necessarily been an issue that's generated additional democratic votes. This time around, I'm hope uh, I'm hopeful that's going to change. So, in the last minute, I was going to say that Biden pointed out that this goes beyond uh, abortion to privacy yep. rights, and they'll undo uh, contraceptive rights and gay marriage and and interracial marriage, and you name it, and turn the clock back, you know, to the last century or even further back. But the other issue is that this activist right wing court is also going after the ability of the government itself to regulate the, our air, our water, our health. I mean, they've gone after OSHA, they've gone after the CDC on the mask mandate, and they're going after the EPA. So this is a mm-hmm. much more radical court than meets the eye. Do you think that the Democrats can point that out in this election year? Again, I'm hopeful that they can. Um, to be perfectly clear, as I indicated at the top of this interview, you know, I, too, uh, uh, am very concerned that they're not going to stop with Roe v. Wade. I'm not a lawyer, but, you know, I've read enough about the issues relating to uh, privacy here that it's very easy for me to imagine uh, they're next going after gay marriage, which, as you indicated, Samuel Lito in particular, loathes and or despises. You know, regarding your broader question, I mean, it, it, again, it's for reasons that I uh, still fail to grapple after all these years. Republicans have taken the Supreme Court always much more seriously than Democrats have. You know, they've worked assiduously behind the scenes for years, you know, being led by the, Fed, uh, the Federal Society to, you know, to generate a pipe stream of right wing extremist, you know, judges that are now, you know, showing everyone, you know, how reckless and, you know, radical they are. So, you know, I, I just, again, I, I hope this is serving as a wa- uh, wake-up call for everyone because there's a lot of still bad news to come out of the Supreme Court for the reasons you just indicated. Well, Jim Manley, I thank you very much for joining us here today. 
Thanks, Ian. And again, I mean, speak with Jim Manley, who's a Washington, D.C.-based independent public affairs consultant, Democratic strategist, and a 21-year veteran of the United States Senate, where he served as senior advisor to Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid for the last six of those years, and before that served 12 years as an aide to the late Senator Ted Kennedy. We're going to take a brief station break, back looking into the future of Twitter, now that Elon Musk has admitted he plans to bring back Donald Trump on Twitter. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Max Chafkin, who's a features editor and tech reporter at Bloomberg's Business Week, whose work has also appeared in Fast Company, Vanity Fair, and New York Times Magazine. He's the author of the new book, The Contrarian, Peter Thiel, and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power. And his latest article at Bloomberg is Elon Musk stakes a $44 billion claim on the future of free speech. Welcome to Background Briefing, Max Chafkin. Hey, Ian. How you doing? Well, thanks, Max. And on Tuesday, Elon Musk was interviewed with the Financial Times uh, at an event that they put on the Future of the Car conference. And he said that banning Trump from Twitter didn't end Trump's voice. It will amplify it among the right. And that is why it's morally wrong and flat out stupid. So he, uh, as many predicted, it would bring back Trump to Twitter if indeed he's able to seal the deal. So let's start with sealing the deal. Is it a done deal? There seems to be some loose ends. Yeah, it's it's definitely not a, a done deal. So um, they they've agreed in in principle to a to a price and and to some basic terms. Um, but but there are a, a, a number of loose ends. One of which is is regulatory. Um, the other is that you know Musk has to uh, line up the financing, and there's going to be legal stuff. And and the important thing here is that you know basically either. Uh, Musk or Twitter can can back away from this thing um, between now and when the deal closes, and and if they do, they'll they'll have to pay a, a penalty, which is I th- I believe uh, about a billion dollars. So so uh, Musk does have an out, and in that um in, in that interview that you just mentioned, he w- seemed to be sort of hedging a bit. He you know when he was asked the question about Trump, he sort of said, well, if I acquire Twitter, it's not a done deal. Whereas he'd been mu- much more definitive in the past, and you know one of the reasons. Um, uh, you know, observers and reporters and so on have been somewhat skeptical of this thing going through. Well, it's twofold. One is that, you know, Musk is is pretty mercurial. He changes his mind. You know, he's sort of famously a little bit all over the place, you know, a little bit like Trump, uh, uh, for that matter. But but the other reason is that Musk is borrowing money against his Tesla stock. That's one of the ways he's financing this deal. And of course, the, the markets have not been doing very well. They haven't been kind to uh, any stock, including Tesla. So, so there's a risk that, you know, Musk's financial system, situation starts to look um, a little bit less good. And maybe these investors that he's trying to line up don't materialize in the way he's hoping, and, and then it would fall apart. Um, however, if it if it does go through, yes, the expectation, and, and Musk confirmed this yesterday, is that um, Donald Trump will be back back on Twitter. And Twitter stock is trading around 47.7 on Tuesday, well below Musk's offer of 
$54.20 per share. Yeah, although that that is probably a lot higher than it would be if his $4 offer wasn't sitting there, right? Because right now investors are basically if you're if you're buying Twitter, you're you're sort of betting on Musk, you know, coming through with that $54 share deal. If that weren't sitting there as sort of an anchor on the price, you know, it wouldn't be surprising if the stock were a bit lower. And and so again, there's also the chance that Musk could try to negotiate for a lower price because of course, when he negotiated this thing, the the uh, stock market looked a lot better than it does today. So in terms of uh, what you've written in your article, Max, uh, Elon Musk uh, stakes a $44 billion claim on the future of free speech, you're suggesting that he sort of made a ideological shift away from being perhaps more liberal in his youth. I know in South Africa, at his high school, he seemed to be fairly liberal. Uh, his father, Errol, says that he was, and he had black friends, which was highly unusual. But has he drifted to the right? Because he, in the interview with the Financial Times, he said, I think Twitter needs to be much more even-handed. It currently has a strong left bias because it's based in San Francisco. Well, a couple of things going on. One is, you know, Musk, by his own admission, has, in fact, you know, drifted to the right, although he would argue that, um, you know, actually, you know, really what's what's drifted is the center. He's sort of stayed more or less in the same place. But but, you know, what's considered right has shifted. Um, what I'll say is that, first of all, when you look at the messaging and the way he's talking about Twitter, you'll see, and who he's talking about it with, you'll see lots of kind of dog whistles and, and coded language. Um, you know, language that is very much meant to appeal to kind of like right wing talk radio and, you know, and, and, and right wing news. And and we're seeing, you know, all within that world, you know, they're really celebrating um, Elon Musk's um, acquisition, uh, you know, of Twitter or proposed acquisition of Twitter. You know, Tucker Carlson, you know, who's one of the highest rated, um, uh, you know, news hosts in America is, you know, basically talking nonstop about this, treating Musk's um, decision to step in here as heroic. It's, you know, that you, you see it in, in sort of right wing media. They're, they're comparing this to the fall of the Berlin Wall or, or what have you. Um, the other thing I'll say, though, is and so I think Musk is, at, is, is, is explicitly calling out to those people. He's like picking up on this meme. And when he talks about bringing balance or ending censorship, what he's really saying is, you know, the, Twitter's moderation has been too left leaning and he's going to make it uh, a little bit more right leaning than it is today. Um, the other thing that I'll say, and I brought this up in the in the piece, is that Musk politically is pretty mercurial. He's somebody who has shifted and in particular who changes with the times. Um, he has uh, built a bunch, a couple of businesses th that do a lot of business with the U.S. government. So SpaceX, his rocket company, um, is, you know, essentially a large defense contractor, um, depends on, on, on big government contracts. And even Tesla, although it's a private company that sells cars, you know, was financed in part through government loans. And these electric cars are have been supported by, uh, you know, really generous tax credits from the federal government. And as somebody who is very good at, at dealing with government, I think Musk has been very good at kind of changing. So during the George Bush era, when when Musk was starting Tesla up, uh, or you know when he took over as CEO and was getting it going, he didn't talk about Tesla as a kind of green company very often. He he talked about Tesla basically as as making awesome cars, that these cars were going to be better than gas powered cars. Then you go to the Obama era, and and of course you know um, green technology is ascendant, and Musk kind of shifts again. And then then in the Trump era, you know you saw him go a little bit more MAGA, right? So I think. 
think this is somebody who is a really good marketer, who is really good at kind of, you know, bobbing and weaving with with the times. And and he's um, sensing, you know, energy in the right. You know, people on the right are, are are really up in arms. If you if you watch Fox News or whatever, you'll you'll see this are really up in arms about what they see as kind of like an unfair bias. And Musk is kind of playing to the crowd. And and right now, it's 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 not necessarily purely ideological either. I'm sure he believes this, but Musk really does need to sell cars to these people because you know during the Obama era and, and that kind of green era of Tesla, um, the company was really good at marketing itself, marketing itself to you know more or less blue staters. You know the these they were selling these luxury sedans and 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 marketing it as a you know a green technology and and of course their next um, car is, is a pickup truck and they're opening a factory in Texas and so I think some of the political messaging um, maybe at least partly calculated. And again, I'm speaking with Max Chafkin, who's a features editor and tech reporter at Bloomberg Businessweek, whose work has also appeared in Fast Company, Vanity Fair, and the New York Times Magazine. He's the author of the new book, The Contrarian, Peter Thiel, and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power. And his latest article, Bloomberg, is Elon Musk stakes a $44 billion claim on the future of free speech. So is there any influence on him from his fellow South African, Peter Thiel, who you wrote about in the book The Contrarian, Peter Thiel and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power? Well, you know, Peter Thiel's um, sort of philosophy and his advocacy is is very much in line with what Musk is talking about. And in fact, when you look at sort of what Musk is proposing, it's actually quite similar to the the kind of stuff that Thiel pushed on Facebook. You know, during the the Trump era, as I wrote in the book, you know, Thiel was very active, you know, on the board and as an advisor uh, to Zuckerberg and as this kind of go between between Trump and the company of sort of pushing. Facebook to go a little easier on you know Republicans on the right that that they were that that he felt they had been too aggressive and that, that they should back off a bit and of course this is you know this gets into areas of dispute you know Facebook will say you know no we're just playing it straight um, but but we but there is you know lots of documented evidence that they were sort of um, you know overlooking certain things for 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 Republican politicians and of course Zuckerberg had lots and lots of contact um, through Teal with the Trump administration now Teal and Musk. Are have a complicated relationship. They 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 have been um, uh, you know they have been co-founders of PayPal. They have been business partners. They've invested in in one another's companies, but they don't agree on everything. And in fact, there have been you know notable sources of tension. So I don't think Teal is you know whispering in Musk's ear in the way that he was you know serving as kind of a mentor to Zuckerberg. Um, but I do think that that Teal's advocacy project has had a huge impact on what. Musk is doing. And we are seeing some people kind of from Teal's orbit, um, certainly having, uh, you know, a big impact on, on Musk. And, you know, Mark Andreessen, who is another Facebook board member, is also kind of a right-leaning, um, you know, uh, a t- tech guy, uh, has has had a lot of contact with Musk. Uh, David Sachs, um, who is, um, you know, a, another PayPal guy, um, has been sort of out there in a big way. So I, I think there's definitely sort of Teal-like threads pulling this, but Musk is, is very much his own, his own person. And, and so some of this is, is, is being driven by his own needs and desires. Well, uh, maybe a little off topic, but Zuckerberg's Facebook has become the favorite tool of autocrats and right-wing dictators, and that's borne out by the election in the Philippines of Bongwong Marcos, the son of 
of the dictator and kleptocrat Ferdinand Marcus, his entire campaign was through social media, and he never took it, did never did interviews with the press, didn't even do the presidential debates, but social media got him got him the job. So that's a real phenomenon that uh, we have to deal with around the world. Yeah, and and I think um, you know obviously strong parallels you know with the U.S. I mean Trump's success uh, politically was not you know driven exclusively by social media, but you know by by Trump's own admission you know without without social media I, I don't think he has the same you know he's able to, to to pull off the same trick and 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 I do think you know despite the the noise you kind of hear and the arguments you hear um, as I said on you know right wing uh, radio and, and television. Um, it, you know, it, it's not at all clear that these social networks or, you know, are biased against conservatives. In fact, there, there are a lot of, um, you know, in general, like conservative activity has been sort of more prevalent on these social networks rather than liberal activity. And you can sort of argue whether that's because the um, social networks are doing something different or whether that's, uh, you know, a failing on the part of, of left activists. But, you know, conservatives have done exceedingly well on social media and, 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 and the far right has done exceedingly well um, thanks to these um, positions that that the companies have taken that 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 Facebook primarily has taken, but but Twitter to some extent has as well. And Trump's eighty million followers are they really waiting with bated breath? I mean, he says that he's he's going to stick with Truth Social, even though he recently couldn't remember the name of his own social media company, which is not doing well. So, well, is that going to be a dilemma for him? On the one hand, he <laughs> liked to have his eighty million followers, but on the other hand. Has he invested in uh, in? Uh, is he going to take a bath on, uh, well, on it, Truth Social? It does feel like a pickle uh, to some extent for for former President Trump. Um, and, and as you say, he said he's not he's not going to go on Twitter. Of course, it's it's pretty obvious that he loves Twitter and that Twitter was you know part of a, a key part of how he not just how he reached. Uh, followers, but really how he generated media attention, right? The the pattern wasn't, oh, Trump tweets, and then the 80 million followers go out and do things. What would happen is Trump would tweet, and then, you know, journalists would basically amplify those tweets because they'd be outrageous. They would write about them. It would generate a whole news cycle and create, you know, just tremendous amount of, of sort of media energy, which was particularly important, you know, during the primary um, when Trump was running against all these other candidates who who seemed to be in a better position. But of course, he continued to, to use, you know, throughout uh, the campaign and then his presidency. Um, I think, you know, what, what to the extent that Musk is thinking super strategically, what he's doing is is finding a way to occupy a niche where there's clearly some demand. I mean, there are clearly a lot of conservatives who who feel aggrieved by social media, um, and and feel aggrieved in this in this specific way, and and might be inclined to favor, um, you know, kind of a right leaning or or as they might see it, a centrist social network. And we've seen a bunch of these businesses, not just Truth Social, uh, you know, Gab, Parler, Getter. Um, there's a company called Rumble, which Teal is in, invested in, that actually is probably the most successful of this bunch so far. And and if Musk really pulls this off, right, he he's going to be a major player. That's going to be a huge problem uh, potentially for all these other companies, including Truth Social. Um, my guess is that the way this would play out is that 
there would be some kind of syndication agreement, right? Trump could still post his things on on Truth Social and then kind of like repost them on Twitter or, or, or some way that allows him to continue to, you know, associate with Truth Social and, and call it his, you know, platform of choice, but which allows him to get that, you know, that glorious, uh, you know, uh, jolt of, of serotonin that he seems to derive from 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 tweeting and that and that frankly you know we all, all those of us who use the platform uh, know know well so 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 that'd be my guess i mean he can't just walk away from truth social because you know he's he, there's a huge financial interest at this point where where if he did that it would it would cost um him and his investors a lot of money so will there be a boycott of a elon musk owned twitter because already his own employees are unhappy about it and, and he's basically dismissing them as being leftists because they live in San Francisco. Could there be a, a left-wing backlash? And I don't know whether there's a, there's room for a, a left-wing version of Parler or, or Rumble, but how do you see this thing shaping up? Could so, there be a defection, in other words, from yeah. a lot of Twitter followers? Yes. I mean, that is definitely a risk. And I think at times we've seen Musk kind of coming to terms with that risk and 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 talking about and attempting to message not in the kind of like right wing let me send out the bat signal to tough Tucker Carlson sort of way but in a way that you know his his left leaning customers um, might appreciate you know when he's he talked about Trump yesterday he he sort of put it in terms not necessarily in terms of ideology but in terms as you said at the top you know if you know banning him is counterproductive it was it, it felt like an effort to actually um you know kind of reach some sort of accommodation with his with his user base and and in his user base is the twitter user base does lean left and and if and it's it's not as if you know the the business would definitely lose you know some of what it has if 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 those if those users defected on on mass now the thing is i'm not sure how likely that is to happen that you know we've had all of these sort of right wing social networks um, prop up. Very few of them have have done done much of anything. Um, you know, there are lots of uh, conservatives who you know will rail against the New York Times, right? But still read it every day. And I, I think you could imagine a similar thing happening with Twitter. In fact, it it does happen currently because you have all these um, you know right right leaning people who rail against Twitter every day. You know, on Twitter. So I I think you know I think a lot of the users will stick around. I mean, the product is. Um, you know, it's pretty addictive and enjoyable. And, and, and I think the, the other important thing to point out is that although Musk is a, is a polarizing figure and he is, you know, seems to be doing everything he can to intensify that, you know, sense of polarization, he still is relatively popular, uh, not just popular with Republicans, but popular um, with all Americans. You know, he's seen as a, you know, as a job creator, as, as, a, as a, you know, a brilliant innovator. And, and, and I think he still sort of has a long way to go um, before he sort of mortgages all of that goodwill. I mean, he's, he's certainly, uh, you know, maybe on his way, but, but I, I think people will basically stick around um, if this deal goes through. Well, a thing that that sort of anchors Twitter and gives it, I think, gravitas is uh, the fact that business leaders and particularly political leaders use it, right? So Absolutely. Are they, are they yes. likely to defect? Again, I, I mean, you know, it's possible, um, but but I but these network effects are are pretty powerful, and and it's not just the, the the presence of business leaders and political leaders, but I think the kind of like morning television show producers and and the basically a lot of the the sort of media ecosystem 
lives on Twitter. So it's a way to speak directly into the ear of the, uh, this is not an original thought, but, you know, speaking directly to a lot of these kind of opinion makers. And as long as they're sticking around, right, it's, I think it's still going to be there. And again, you know, there, 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 there are things about this platform that are, you know, sort of well executed. They, they've made it ne- not necessarily a great business. Um, and Twitter, you know, generates really like a tiny, uh, c- compared to Facebook, Twitter is very bad at, at, at you know, uh, selling advertising and, and and generating revenue on the back of its user base. Um, but but it, but I think it is obviously good at creating a sticky product for, for the users it does have. And I, I don't think those people are going to go away. So just in closing then, Max Chapkin, I have a problem, though, with it in general, the idea that the richest man in the world buys a public media company and takes it private in the name of free speech. There's something wrong with that picture. Well, there's certainly something that's contradictory. And and I think when you look at Elon Musk's history, um, he isn't somebody who is has been some great advocate of free speech. You know, as we... Um, and others have reported, you know, he's he's treated, you know, leakers at his own company, people who speak to the press um, as the enemy. You know, he's he's somebody who has has been very, very aggressive in kind of policing the speech of his own employees. And 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 that, you know, when you when you talk about um, if you accept his sort of premise, which is that Twitter is a public square, which I don't think you necessarily have to ex- accept, right? Twitter is a private company and 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 it, it is legally allowed to do whatever it wants. But Musk says it's a it's it is a public good. And and then if you accept that it's public good, it is, as you say, um, very odd, inconsistent even to turn it over to one person. And, you know, given the way that like Silicon Valley companies have have organized themselves, I think it's it's fair to assume that if Musk does take this thing private um, and reorganize it, he will reorganize it in a way where he has the same kind of absolute power over the company that Mark Zuckerberg has over Facebook. And then again, you have this you know, incredible consolidation of power around a, a very small number of people you know, and, and kind of dubious you know, ideological uh, goals. Well, Max Chafkin, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Uh, always a pleasure, Ian. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Max Chapkin, who's a featured editor and tech reporter at Bloomberg Businessweek, whose work has also appeared in Fast Company, Vanity Fair, and the New York Times Magazine. And he's the author of the new book, The Contrarian, Peter Thiel, and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power. And his latest article at Bloomberg is Elon Musk stakes a $44 billion claim on the future of free speech. We're going to take a restation break back, looking into whether there are signs of a lessening of patriotic fervor in the Russian media as the war in Ukraine drags on and Russian casualties mount.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Gorham, a professor of Russian studies at the University of Florida and the author of two award-winning books on language, culture, and politics, After Newspeak, Language, Culture, and Politics in Russia, from Gorbachev to Putin, and Speaking in Soviet Tongues, Language, Culture, and the Politics of Voice in Revolutionary Russia, in addition to two co-edited volumes, Digital Russia, The Language, Culture, and Politics of New Media Communications, and The Culture and Politics of Verbal Prohibition in Putin's Russia. And he recently published articles devoted to the political and rhetorical impact of trolls, hackers, blogging, bureaucrats, tweeting presidents, dictators on Instagram, Alexei Navalny on YouTube, and the Putin administration's recent efforts to enlist all legislative, technological, and rhetorical means possible to establish a sovereign internet independent of the World Wide Web. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Gorham. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And obviously the um, Monday's Victory Day parade in Moscow, celebrating the end of World War II in Europe, uh, was a bit of a um, non-event, I guess, in terms of the expectations people had that Putin would make a dramatic announcement. But... Uh, Yesterday, the head of U.S. intelligence said this is going to be a long war and Putin is likely to get more desperate. Were you watching and following Russian media? Is there any indication in Russian media that they're prepared for a long war? I know at this point the propaganda has been pervasive and the majority of Russians are whipped up by the war fever and the lies of which Putin repeated at his Victory Day parade about fighting Nazis, etc. So any indications that this long haul, this long war is at some point or other, Putin's going to lose his support? Not at this point, uh, judging by the the main talking heads that I've been following and that uh, one one of whom is a a guy named uh, Solovyov. He's uh, one of uh, Putin's main... uh, uh, television propagandists has a nightly show with with a pretty pretty broad following and so far he's uh, he's sort of marching in tune uh, he has a morning radio program uh, as well where he uh, allows himself to get even a little bit more unleashed and uh, if anything he's showing um he, and has been showing a little bit of frustration with the the lack of aggressiveness in some cases on the part of the Russian military command in in running the war, but uh, for the most part, they're in lockstep with the with the Kremlin still. And nobody's blaming the defense minister Shoigu, who's not a military man, but that's my understanding. So who are they blaming? Well, the um, the issue of blame really does not get voiced uh, in primetime television. Uh, that would uh, be an omission of failure or lack of success. And so far, that it hasn't gotten to that stage. They're still focused on the um, degree to which Russia has been forced into this conflict by the uh, aggressiveness of NATO and the West using uh, Zelensky and Ukraine as, as a puppet. So it's very much framed in terms of a of a uh, defense of uh, of Russian interests uh, against an aggressive Western alliance, and um, what battles and military activities do get shown, 
are uh, focused on the Donbas, the region, the eastern uh, and southern region of Ukraine, where the main the main focus is at this point. But initially, when they first went in, Russian media, from what I remember, was all about liberating the country from Nazis. It wasn't so much about NATO. So there's been a, a shift in that narrative, has there? Because presumably it's not going as well as they expected. Yeah, the the term uh, denazification still gets thrown around a bit. Uh, but from what I've heard, there have been uh, <laughs> analyses from sociological institutes close to the Kremlin that uh, show that the Russian population doesn't quite get the whole denazification uh, language or demilitarization. Those were the two words used, uh, in part because they're kind of difficult terms for the average Russian to get his or her head around. Um, they're foreign terms. They're a little bit uh, exotic sounding. And and I think that might explain some of the effort to uh, shift the the narrative more toward a, a classical battle between uh, East and West, between Russia and NATO. And the United States, right there. Oh, in the United States, of course. Yeah. yeah. The main enemy, the lovely yeah. Potivnik. Wow. Yeah, just to, just today, the Ministry of Defense is uh, restoking the, um, the conspiracy theories about chemical weapon experiments and biological weapon experimentation uh, run by the Department, the U.S. Department of Defense on Ukrainian soil. So they could be... Uh, Kind of preparing the ground for some activity in that in that area. This all happened back in March, I believe, as well. Uh, nothing really came of it, but uh, it's it's reemerging as well, which oftentimes means that they're kind of laying the laying the groundwork for something or other. Is there any hint that they're laying the groundwork for the use of a nuclear weapon? No. Not that I've uh, seen or heard the, the occasional uh, bluster on the part of uh, talking heads on television um, are just that uh, bluster. But um, from what I've seen, both uh, coming out of U.S. military and from Russia, it doesn't it doesn't seem like there's any sort of serious concern about that at this stage. But isn't there a division in Russia between the people out in the countryside who are, you know, conservative in the way that people in the in the red states here in the United States are? They all watch television, whereas in the cities, they tend to be wired into the Internet, even though Putin's shut down a lot of it. Is there a digital divide in Russia? Oh, there definitely is. Uh, I would... Um... It, there's definitely a, a, a urban-rural divide. There's a generational divide. Uh, the older popul the older the, the member of the population, the more likely he or she is to rely on uh, state television. Uh, and um, there's an educational divide as well. So it cuts along all three uh, uh, of those areas. The sad thing is that the vast majority of the uh, of the young men, mainly, who are being sent into battle, are coming from these uh, less populated, more rural, less educated swaths of the population. So, at some point, there's uh, you would expect there to be something of uh, of uh, pr some pretty serious cognitive dissonance arising in some of those southern, 
more rural regions where a lot of these uh, young men are, are coming from who are being sent off to die. And what about the urban professionals, the talented people, particularly in the tech sector? They're apparently leaving the countries in droves as, as much as can get out. Apparently it's not that easy to get out anymore. Is there any indication that they're losing talent? Again, I don't imagine it's being publicized, but is there any way to know that some of these reports we get, 100,000, a third of its its tech sector is left? Yeah, I've, I, that that is a, a term I've heard, a, an amount, a number I've heard as well. At least a good 70,000 of these folks have, have left for uh, safer areas. Um, their jobs are more portable. They can... Uh, find employee in other companies and um and it is a, a one of the it has always been one of the kind of the brighter spots of the russian uh of the russian economy and got to the point where the prime minister mr mishustin was actually uh, uh pleading with this uh with this sector of the population to uh to stay behind and uh, enjoy some of the perks that he was offering but uh no, I think that the, the the exodus on on the part of that population started pretty early, and um, and is is continuing. And in terms of the economic pain that sanctions are supposed to bring about, in order to make Putin come to his senses, is there any indication in the media that sanctions are biting? I don't see uh, a whole lot of indication of that in the uh, in the mainstream Russian media and I think the uh, conventional assumption is that it'll take some more time for them to actually uh, kick in into the summer at least and so there's a lot of talk about sanctions as as an indication of the Western campaign against Russia almost as if that's one of the reasons why Russia is involved in this conflict is because they're being being punished by by the West on part of these uh, in in the form of these sanctions. Um, but um, so far, other than the absence of a lot of uh, Western retailers and products, which uh, again is oftentimes limited to urban populations, there's not there's not a, a a huge sign that the sanctions are making Russians' lives um, considerably more difficult at the time. Well, at the moment, um, the Europeans have poised to stop the imports of Russian oil, and Hungary is holding it up. Orban, of course, being a uh, a kleptocrat, is maybe is trying to extort some kind of reward for going along with it. But at this point, he's pretty adamant. Of course, it's worth noting that Orban is the hero of many on the Republican right, including Tucker Carlson. So he's really being a, a traitor to the, the cause at the moment. Any, any discussion of that in the Russian media, that Orban is their guy? Uh, not that I see have seen, but it's not uh, necessarily a, a, a line of uh, discussion that I've been looking for or, or following. I've been personally uh, struck by the degree to which countries like uh, Hungary and, and Turkey, who both have uh, leaders who have traditionally been pretty friendly to Vladimir Putin, are, 
are towing the uh, the line as far as uh, sanctions and and the provision of weapons. But you're you're absolutely right. Hungary is sort of the weak link as far as the European Union goes. And if I'm not mistaken, it's not uh, it's not a total unwillingness. It's just a, a, a uh, kind of holding out as far as the timeline, as as far as the embargo on on oil. But um, I could be wrong there. Well, recently, I spoke with a couple of specialists, and one one of whom, of course, was the insider in in the Trump White House, who wrote the anonymous uh, op-ed in the New York Times, Miles Taylor. And the discussion is about the, this sort of de facto alliance between Putin. Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Zayed in the United Arab Emirates, OPEX Plus as it's called, and that the war in Ukraine is pretty irrational and a lot of people have wondered why Putin did it and they're still wondering. But if you think about how the price of oil has skyrocketed, how Putin and MBS and MBZ are making a ton of money, how this money could be used to funnel back into U.S. politics, how much MBS and MBZ supported Trump and want him to come back, and how much they're stiffing Biden, who's begging them to pump more oil to lower the price because he's getting slammed by inflation. And now the polls indicate that Americans are more concerned about inflation than they are about anything else. So that's a portent that... The Democrats may get wiped out in November. Then uh, the Republicans. Uh, then you've got a kind of Trump's got a clear path to 2024, and that would be exactly what Putin wants. We know that Putin's got a hold over Trump, and we know that uh, MBS has just given two billion dollars to Jared Kushner. He could. He's got enough money to buy the entire election in 2024. So, is that a scenario that makes sense to you? Well, the uh, yeah, the the connection with uh, with uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, the UAE is a little bit beyond my uh, level of competency, but it uh, it there's no question that uh, one of Putin's main advantages is that he is not beholden to an electorate and uh, doesn't have to worry about general elections, let alone midterm elections in in the near future. And they're very sensitive to that that pressure on the administration in the United States. In fact, this this uh, latest version of the uh, conspiracy theory about the U.S.-run biological and chemical weapons uh, experimentation lab in Ukraine specifically targets uh, Democratic leaders as being the um, political uh, cabal behind this. Uh, you have a combination of uh, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, George Soros, and Barack Obama. Not a not a Republican in the bunch. So uh, that kind of suggests that they are they are sensitive to this this weak point in the U in in U.S. politics, the penchant on the part of uh, what. Uh, in uh, Soviet espionage, espionage was was called the useful idiot to uh, in, in among the enemy to to latch on to these conspiracies uh, because they sort of speak to their own political needs and interests. So 
they're definitely playing that game, no question, no question whatsoever. And Tucker Carson's been repeating those uh, Russian talking points about the so-called lab, the bioweapons lab, along with other Russian talking points. So there's a feedback loop there. There is, to the extent that um, supposedly there wasn't even a memo sent out from the Kremlin to the the Russian media saying we we need to hear more of uh, of this guy on on your airwaves, Tucker Carlson. I'm I'm talking about that was back in in March. Uh, so he is serving quite a quite a useful function, and uh, well, if he if he starts talking about it again tonight or tomorrow, then uh, we'll know we'll know where it came from. Margaret Gorham, I thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Gorham. He's a professor of Russian studies at the University of Florida and the author of two award-winning books on language, culture, and politics. After Newspeak, Language, Culture, and Politics in Russia from Gorbachev to Putin and Speaking in Soviet Tongues, Language, Culture, and the Politics of Voice in Revolutionary Russia. In addition to two co-edited volumes, Digital Russia, The Language, Culture, and Politics of New Media Communications and Culture and Politics of Verbal Prohibition in Putin's Russia, and he recently published articles devoted to the political and rhetorical impact of trolls, hackers, blogging, bureaucrats, tweeting presidents, dictators on Instagram, Alexei Navalny on YouTube, and the Putin administration's recent efforts to enlist all legislative, technological, and rhetorical means possible to establish a sovereign internet independent of the World Wide Web. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine
Sunday.